Stone Chats, Small Talks About Homeschooling, presented by Wildwood Curriculum, a Charlotte Mason education for all. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Stone Chats. I'm Jennifer Gaiman. And I'm Marjorie Lang. And we are here today with Rihanna Goss as our guest. We also have Crystal Hosea listening in who might um, jump in a little bit here and there, but mostly we're going to be asking Rihanna about, uh, what are we asking about? Singing? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, just the singing part because the Charlotte Mason music, there's so much, you know, you can talk about instrument lessons and things like that. So we'll right. just bring it down to just the singing part. So we're going to talk about how Charlotte Mason approached singing throughout the years um, in the programs, and I'm not sure what else we're going to get into, but I'm sure we'll get into other things also. Yeah. So Rihanna, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? What kind of background yeah, you have? I'd love to. So I am a music teacher. I started out in um, elementary music, and that's mainly my forte. So kindergarten through fifth grade is what I've spent the past um, 15, 16 years focusing in uh, 10 years in the public school classrooms teaching elementary music. And then after that, um, spending a couple years with mommy and me classes for the babies to six year olds and also as a music teacher for a preschool. So a lot of the younger kids, when we get up to talking about things that older kids should do, I do have experience in middle school and high school through um, student teaching experience. But as far as professionally, I haven't worked with the upper grades in choir and solfa. So um, I have a little bit of knowledge through all of my training. I have my bachelor's in music education, and then I also have certification in Orff Schulberg, which is a type of music methodology. And um, and it has a lot of similarities with Kadai. I've also been involved in our local Kadai chapter um, learning stuff. So Music teaching is what I love. <laughs> so how did you get how did you get involved with Charlotte Mason? My mom homeschooled me and she bought the original homeschooling series in the nineteen eighties from a Mary Pride catalog. And she read a lot of Karen Andriola's um, newsletters in Mary Pride's newsletter and um, she educated us not as Charlotte Mason like I'm doing, you know, with the internet, we have so much now that we can actually implement it in our homeschooler homeschooling life a lot easier than they could in the 1980s and 1990s. Right. Um, just because of what's available and the support and which is why I love Wildwood. And, you know, you can actually go and see, okay, this is what I need to do. Um, my mom didn't have that. So a lot of my education was more textbook oriented. But when I was cleaning out all of my mom's old homeschool stuff, I found the original volumes, the, the Charlotte Mason volumes that were published back in the 90s. So, um, and a friend of mine also that's local um, did Charlotte Mason. So that's how I got introduced to that. Okay, so that's awesome. I love how your mom started it. And then even though she couldn't implemented it maybe even as much as she wanted to mm -hmm. you were then able to because there's so many more resources available now yes exactly yeah and it's beautiful you know i just we have a a local group a very active charlotte mason group that reads through the volumes and you know a lot of things that i'll read um we're in volume two right now i think oh my 
my mom did that. You know, she didn't even know that she was, um, well, maybe she did. I'm not going <laughs> to give her the benefit of that. She, she, she really did. She did a great job with me and my brothers in, in homeschooling us, although she might not have known exactly the philosophy or principles. It was, it was a great experience. That's yeah. wonderful. All right, let's move into the singing. Can you give us um, an overview first? Of- yeah. So I, I really like um, talking about the Kerwins. So when you're reading through the volumes, you see references to either John Kerwin or um, Annie Kerwin um, with the uh, piano approach to teaching piano and music. And also in singing, um, John Kerwin was her father-in-law who developed a system of singing. You know, going to that, you can see a very sequential order of teaching singing, which is when I was reading it, I would uh, compare it to my background in modern music education, you know, because I have my degree in music education. We studied all the different methodologies. We studied Kadai, we studied Orff, we studied Gordon, even Delcros, which is also Charlotte Mason actually mentions some work by Delcros. So I think when Charlotte Mason was writing these volumes and the PNU was very active, it was also a big boom in music education around the Western developing worlds, you know, with um, Kadai in Hungary, the Kerwins in England, Delcros in France. So we see this in Orphan Germany. We see this rise of academia in how to teach music to children, which I think is wonderful, you know. And then throughout the generations and decades, I feel like music education has continued to improve on that. So when I read a lot of things that are in the Kerwin books and the Tonic Solfa, I think, oh, well, that's this way of teaching music and how I would do it in my classroom. So can you tell us a little bit more about Kerwin because he's not somebody who, or the method. Yeah. So I have actually on my blog kind of a history and what it was is I should look this up. I can't remember her name. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, There was a woman. I believe she was from Norway even maybe that developed the modulator. And, and the Kerwins first got hint of this method through the modulator, Sarah Glover. Okay, so Sarah Glover developed the modulator, which if you go, okay, very, 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 very far back, Guido Durezzo, he was a composer who composed mass, uh, music for mass. Mm-hmm. And that's where we get the do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do. Because in the mass, each section started on a starting pitch. Do, and then there was a chant, you know, so this is going all the way back to chants. Sarah Glover took that, developed a modulator, and then the Kerwins developed this system called tonic solfa based on that diatonic scale, which is the do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do. So when you think of the sound of music, which everybody is like, oh, remember that scene in Sound of Music? Do, a deer, a female right. deer, you know, you start at the very beginning. All right, so that's the beginning. That's the beginning, and that's the history of, um, of the Kerwins writing this system of music education in singing called Tonic Solfa. So when you say that she developed the modulator, it was... Mm-hmm. I'm envisioning some kind of mechanical instrument. Yeah. 
It's not, it's not an instrument. It's like a poster. And oh. it has, it has do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do in the middle line of this poster. And then out from each diatonic step, it's like the, what we call the chromatic scale. So you actually have do, d, re, re, mi, fi. And yeah, that's a no. Yeah. <laughs> we'll just go with seven. <laughs> so, um, and, and so that's how the system develops. So when we read Charlotte Mason, we see this reference to elemental all the time. You know, take it back. And uh, there's an article by W.H. Leslie in the PNEU programs about how to teach music. And that's what he says. Um, there's, a, there's a quote that he's given that's, that music is like reading, writing, and arithmetic. So you have, you have these different parts of music. And when you break it down and think of this huge arc of what music is, we can break it down to be more elemental to say, hey, let's just teach this part of music and here's how you do it. Let's teach this part of music. Here's how you do it in this part. So I think even the average mom, average homeschool mom can do this and just breaking it down to the very easy, easy steps. And that's what I've done for the, the website that I started is called Sofa Sofa because whenever I was teaching elementary music, um, when we start with little kids like form one, we don't start with a whole do re mi fa sol la ti do. That's just, that's that. <laughs> so we start small. And the difference between the Kerwins and Kadai is where you start. I fall into more of the Kadai education camp, which starts with a so me intervals. Instead of the Kerwins start with do, so, do, so. I think the so me is more of a natural interval for a child. You know, when you think about the playground, na 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 boo boo, right? So so me la so me. So you have that natural interval, what we call an interval, which is um, the space between two notes. Uh, you have that natural interval, which is why I'm more kadai, which is why I said, you know, I feel like through the decades we've progressed in music education and. Even today, if you were to go to, um, to school to major in music education, you're going to learn the Kadai method. You're not going to learn the Kerwin method, um, which is another reason that I feel like introducing this approach to children is more beneficial because this is what they will know if they want to keep pursuing it. Not to say that the Kerwins don't have any, you know, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's a lot of good stuff in it, but, and it's good to know, but that's just where I come from, if that makes so, sense. Can you tell us um, what Kodai or who Kodai was? Yes, So that I the can. listeners can know what the progression was. <laughs> yes. So here's a book that I have. It's called The Kodai Approach by Katinka Daniel. I don't know how to say it. <laughs> <laughs> but she was one of the, um, the people early on, back in like the 1930s, maybe, even as far back as that, is the a student of the original Kadai method, bringing it to the United States. So um, there's a, a paragraph here. If you don't mind, I can read it. Go ahead and read it. Yeah. Okay. And so, so first of all, let's say that Kodai mm -hmm. is spelled K-O-D-A -A with the little thing over it. Yes. L-Y. Yes. Mm -hmm. All right. So 
Zoltan Kadai is known throughout the world not only as a prolific composer and distinguished musicologist, but also as one of the giants of music education. His name is today identified with a highly successful system of musical training, which he developed and helped to implement into the Hungarian national education system. His philosophy and methods have spread widely. Today, they are practiced in Eastern and Western Europe, Japan, Australia, North and South America, and Iceland, for the system is completely adaptable to any language and culture. Kadai's researches into Hungarian folk song literature convinced him that these songs provided the most practical and enjoyable way of teaching music to the young. Using these materials, children in the early years are introduced to the simplest of intervals and rhythmic patterns. So that's like, Sami, like I talked about, that's where we start. Uh, step by step, they progress to compositions written especially for children and then onto works of the great composers. Eventually, they are capable of complex part singing, are able to recognize elaborate musical forms, and have an acquaintance with and appreciation for the masterworks of music. Kadai's strong belief was that music belongs to everybody, which I love because you hear that with Charlotte Mason so much. You know, it's an education right. for all. And for that reason, music is an indispensable part of education. So I really feel like when we talk about Charlotte Mason's principles, the Kadai method of music education fits within those principles in the same way the Kerwin tonic soul thought fits, because there are a lot of things that are the same. It's just maybe approaching the system and the sequence a little bit differently. And, you know, when we've been... When Jennifer and I have looked through the programs, we've noticed that she changed resources as different resources became available. Mm -hmm. It would not surprise me at all if she were still alive today that she progressed past Kerwin and then adopted Kodai. I would totally agree. Mm -hmm. Right? It does. It. I don't know if it's an easier way to do it, but it might be better. But like you said, it's, it's available now, whereas mm -hmm. Kerwin really isn't. And another thing I just... And I had noted this before, and I had completely forgotten about it, but Kodai starts with folk songs, mm -hmm. yes. right? And that's yes. what Charlotte Mason did, the whole thing, yes. all the way through the forms. It's learn these national songs, learn these folk songs. Yes. And then um, using those for singing training, or was she just singing them? Okay, so if we look at the Tonic Sulfa book, um, they do in their lessons break it up, which is very similar to how music teachers today will lesson plan. A whole music class is not just going to be on one thing. We are going to bring in so many different parts of music into our lesson. We're taking out music history. We're not going to talk about composer appreciation or music study, composer study, because um, even though that is in a Charlotte Mason education, we're just talking about singing today. Singing can be broken up into the modulator, which is what we talked about, that poster. Sight singing, which is looking at notation and singing the solfa syllables. Ear training, which is listening to something. And Charlotte Mason talked a lot about ear training, not just in music, but in nature. And, and really focusing that habit of attention in your listening. Right. Um, which is, as a music teacher, you're like, duh. <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of, of ear training within a lesson. And I can tell you, 30 minutes, this is written in the Tonic Sulfa book, three minutes of voice training, which would be vocalizes like, Mama made me mash my M&Ms, Mama made me mash my M&Ms. If you've ever done uh, choir 
you know, that's, that, that would be your, your voice training, some different exercises to I love that because when I was in school, we just sang la la la, right? Yeah, la, yeah. la 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 la, and that gets kind of boring, right? But sure, we'll just Mama do it for three M&Ms. Oh yeah, as a choir That's teacher, much nicer. <laughs> yeah, there's one about stinky socks too. So my boys really like that one. Um, five minutes of modulator practice. So that's the poster. Three minutes of sight singing, which would be following the notation, the staff notation. Seven minutes of rhythm work four minutes of ear training, and eight minutes to practice songs. So there you have a 30-minute music lesson, all broken down into different parts. And it really makes for a well-rounded class that keeps the kids focused and excited, excited about music. And if I, if you don't mind, I wanted to read this, this quick quote, which I thought was so interesting. We so often find that infants and quite small children are thoroughly enthusiastic over their music classes, it being the first schoolwork that they do really well. And, you know, that's one reason I love teaching elementary music is, you know, if you asked a kid in the hallway, what's your favorite class? Most of the time they say music. (laughs) And I'll also add that um, some, I don't even know what I'm trying to say here. The the difference in language now. When she says infants, we think of infant now as uh, birth to six months mm-hmm. or maybe birth to one year. But when Charlotte Mason says infants, she means preschoolers. Yeah. So she's not mm-hmm. talking about the babies. Yeah. <laughs> they can't talk yet anyway. They can talk. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but that doesn't mean that you yeah. can't sing with the babies. <laughs> right. Oh, yes. Um, and, and there is some of that referenced in the Tonic Solfa book of the importance of singing to your baby and creating um, a steady beat. I want to throw out one more modern reference in music mm-hmm. education. John Feyerabend, he's been around for mm, 20 years, maybe. I've seen, I've gone to a lot of his different workshops. He is an amazing music educator and he really is in tune with brain physiology and development of a child and he's written some wonderful resources for sequencing a music education. His program is called Conversational Solfege which would be like your 50 steps in sight singing um, which it's, it's expensive. You know, it's something that as a music teacher in a school, the school would invest in getting that program for their children. And he also has for younger children, like preschool, kindergarten, first grade, it's called First Steps in Music. So John Feyerabend, his motto is that children should be tuneful, beatful, and artful. And when I read these old publications like Tonic Solfa and articles in the PNEU, I hear that. Although it may not be those exact words, we want children to have the aesthetic of it's beautiful singing and it's artful. It's not just mechanical. You know, you don't, you're not trying to create singing robots, (laughs) you know. Your, your focus in teaching singing and teaching music to children is to reach this part of the soul that is beauty, you know, to create something beautiful. So um, Beatful, he talks a lot about different, I'm talking about John Feyerabend now, uh, he talks a lot about different cultures and how as cultures we have this 
guiding principle of bouncing our babies, you know, rocking our babies. We're developing the beat in birth to six months. And that's really important to continue work with as they get older and as they become form one school age, still working on that beat. And then tuneful, and that's where your singing lessons come in that we're talking about. So I just think it it works so well with a Charlotte Mason education. Yes, that's lovely. I never thought of it that way. Yeah. All right. So let's go through the forms. Can you give us an overview of what the progression would have been? Or these books are really not widely available yeah. anymore. So I, I, I would love to give maybe a generalized idea. Yes. Yeah, that's um, fine. In Forms 1 and 2, uh, you'll see in the old publications like Tonic Solfa and the PNEU, references to rote songs to game songs, what you're doing is you're really wanting to establish a beat in a child. So there's even references to using physical movement and drill in your singing class. And that helps solidify a steady beat. In the Annie Kerwin Piano Method book, that's one of the first things that she also talks about in a beginning piano student. Don't move on until they have a sense of beat. So I would say... In Form 1, and maybe a little bit of Form 2, make sure that you have a strong sense of steady beat for a child, that they can follow. They're singing a song, a rote song. So rote just means you're not looking at a piece of music and reading music. Your teacher is singing a song for you to echo, and you learn it that way. That's what rote is. And then also in Form 1B, I know that they did start interval training with the solfa. So what they would start with in the PNE schools back a long time ago is they would start with do, so, and then add me. So you would have the, like the major chord, do, me, so. What I was saying that music teachers today would mostly agree with is starting with the tones of so, me. So me la so me. So those three tones. And then as you progress through form two and maybe some form three, is students should be able to follow on the modulator and also on notated music the pentatonic scale, which is do re mi so la. They should be able to follow those steps and skips and intervals of those five notes. That's why it's called pentatonic. In form three, and maybe late form two, they should also be able to sing from sight the pentascale. So pentatonic is different than pentascale. Pentatonic is going to be do, re, mi, so, la. And if you remember from that um, sound of music, it's do, re, mi, Fa, so, la, di, do. We haven't introduced fa yet. This is a very difficult interval or difficult step to sing in tune, which is why it's introduced later in progression. Um, so the pentascale is do, re, mi, fa, so. And then following those, what we call tone sets, you will be introducing more and more and more until they finally can sing by sight, and also orally dictate a full diatonic range 
of notes. And the only way that they're going to be able to do that is through practice. So when you say sing by sight, you mm -hmm. mean they're looking at written music yes. and they're able to sing it without somebody playing the melody ahead of time for them to learn it, right? Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yes. So how do you get to that point? <laughs> there are lots of practice. I mean, if you're doing 30 minutes once a week and progressing, you can do it. And um, with my, my blog that I set up, The Sofa Sofa, it's just exercises. So there's no repertoire of songs that I've posted on that blog. It's only like what we talked about reference the 50 steps in sight singing that book is not going to have folk songs in it that book is only exercises and if you remember in a lesson 30 minutes is not spent on just exercises only like five minutes is spent on drilling that skill because it is a skill being able to read music and being able to sing music uh, with my kids we just do it naturally at home and we also incorporate it some with piano lessons because piano is my main instrument and I teach my kids piano lessons as well and if you look at the Kerwin method in piano um, she does some of the solfa as well in the lessons so that's what I'll do with my kids you know they've learned how to play certain notes from the staff because as part of our progression in learning piano, that's one of the things we learn. And they can see how a melody is going down by step. And I say, okay, if C is do and you're starting on E, how could you sing that? Mi, re, do. So they're singing by sight, looking at the, the notation. And I have actually published a book on that Solfa Sofa website that you can print off. And it has exercises just like I'm talking about. It has exercises that you can print it off and it's all free. And what I've done is um, I've done three units. So you could incorporate these little drills into your music lesson and review them. I would say if we're talking about modern grades, I would say that a student from first grade to third grade, should be very comfortable with the pentatonic, the do, re, mi, sol, la. And then third grade to fifth grade is when you can really make sure that they have either the full diatonic scale or just the penta scale, the do, re, mi, fa, so. And then farther on is when you can get into more advanced things. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about maybe more of the form three. Um, students, they should be able to sing part songs, which is about my limit of where I went with my elementary kids. So my fourth and fifth graders, most of my fifth graders, we would make sure that the, they could independently sing something different than the other part. So part one would have a melody. Part two would have a different melody, a counter melody, and they could sing them at the same time to create harmony. So that's what your older forms are going to start doing. You introduce that through rounds first. Um, actually, right now, my kids are learning Sweetly Sings the Donkey, and they can sing it in a round, which they think it's hilarious, so it's really fun. And we also did it in our Charlotte Mason co-op, and we sang it in a four-part round where everybody starts on a different section. Like, row, row, row your boat. If someone's not okay. familiar with rounds, row, row, row your boat gently down row, the street. Row, row, row your yeah. boat. Right. Yeah, exactly. So rounds are a great way to start introducing that concept of part singing. And then when they're getting up into the forms four, five, and six, uh, we talked before the podcast started about the Shropshire book is something that's men mentioned. Shropshire songbook. <laughs> it's a tongue twister, which includes desk camps. 
So by then, they should be able to sing, sight sing, because they've had all of these years of practice. When they look at a line of a melody, they should be able to sing the syllables, hum the syllables, what we call vocalizing. So if it's like, mi, re, do, so, they don't have to sing the syllables. They could just hum it to learn the melody of it. So they're reading by sight and then putting that a desk can is a part that's higher than the melody usually. So it's just different part songs. And then also in the upper forms, they're going to be learning art songs, which is just another word for um, the composed, you know, the classically composed songs like opera arias. So more of the traditional classic repertoire of singing songs. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's far beyond my <laughs> current abilities. Yeah, and okay, so let me read another quote. This is Go ahead. Um, from, uh, what's his name? This is from W.H. Leslie. And I'm saying him, but it might be her, but I think it's a him. Do you know? I don't know. Okay, W.H. Leslie wrote a PNU article, and he goes on to say, Gradually, as they go up the school and less attention is given to the understanding than to the execution, enthusiasm gradually dies down, unless in the hands of a very exceptional instructor. But where music is no specialty of the teacher, things are allowed very often to take their own course, and the song singing gets a kind of perfunctory exercise without enthusiasm either by the teacher or the children. Where this atmosphere obtains in any school, it is really advisable to confine much more to theoretical exercises than allow music to become a humdrum performance. So what he's saying there, if you're, if you're approaching the age with your students where singing is not joyful and it's not something that they're interested in, don't make it humdrum. Just focus on the theoretical concepts that may be more interesting to them you know, learning about the key signatures, learning about different rhythms. Um, the exercises in reading and general knowledge of the ways of music are always a valuable asset to anybody, whereas the teaching of songs, and so only people who have no particular liking for them themselves, is bound to be reflected on the class generally. Uh, he also goes on to say basically that rhythm, he feels like, is the most important part of a musical education. I personally disagree because I think as older children may develop personal tastes in music, work with that, you know, to keep their interest, to keep that aesthetic quality of music alive in their hearts. I hope that made sense. (laughs) Okay, so I've got a whole bunch of questions here, but starting from the very end. So for me, when my daughter was in high school, we just, we sang all the time, right? We learned mm-hmm. the, the folk songs and it's still one of our favorite things. So that quote that you read that said, oh, if it's be- the music, the songs are becoming humdrum, focus on the theory and the key signatures and things. I would think personally that that would be the boring part because they're just well, probably, learning To theory. some students, it probably is. But to some students, it might be more interesting. What I noticed from personal experience with mm-hmm. fifth graders. So when students approached fifth grade, I noticed some of that coming, especially from some boys. You know, they would come to my class. They right. wouldn't want to sightseeing. They wouldn't want to do the solfa drills that I was doing with them. They wouldn't want to sing. 
And so I started a drumming unit and I had basically drum circles and we would work on rhythms in that way and they loved it. And so I think that, and we also, sometimes I did have more of the worksheet things and some kids preferred that. They would rather do fun worksheets where they get to spell words by following the staff notation and things like that than they did actually singing and participating. So you have to know your student. And and I think when we're getting down to the bottom line, like I said, aesthetics, I, I want all students that I've taught my own children to know how valuable music is. There's a quote, and I'm not sure if it's attributed to anyone, but it's something I love to say, where words fail, music speaks. You know, how many times, I'm going to get teary, I just talked about this, but how many times do we listen to a beautiful piece of music? And it's just emotional, you know? So, <laughs> so I, think, I think that's why music is so important, is that it touches that part of the soul that where words feel. So <laughs> you can edit, <laughs> edit my crying out. <laughs> it makes it more real. <laughs> Okay, so another thing that I wanted to ask. Um, so when I used to hear about sight singing, I would think, well, I, if somebody says, give me an, an A, I can't do that. And then well, that's, that's perfect pitch. Though, that's right? perfect pitch, yeah, yeah. So how would you do the dough? So I have heard mm -hmm. about movable versus fixed mm -hmm. dough. I'm not yes. completely clear Charlotte, on it. Well, in the Charlotte Mason schools, they focused on movable dough, which is also Kadai. Okay. It's, it's um, what movable dough means is that no matter what your pitch range is, you always have a home tone. Um, when I explain it to my students, is I'll sing, I'll sing jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. Oh, what fun it is to ride in a one horse open sleigh. <laughs> no, no, one horse open. Slay. That is dough. That is your hometown. When we finish a song, when we sing a song, we always find dough. So that could be in the key of G, like um, of my recorder. So <laughs> instruments are acceptable use to help with singing pitch. Or if we were in the key of C. Do, re, mi. It doesn't matter. That's what it means by movable dough. Whatever key that you're in, you have a home tone. So when you're when you're looking at the music and you're sight singing, you're not looking at the note and saying, "We start with F" or "We start with A." We're, you're looking at the note and saying, "We start with Do" That's or exactly whatever. Right. Yes. Okay. The other thing I wanted to ask, and I, I hope Jennifer and the others have more questions too, or maybe we could just keep talking, but <laughs> the other thing specifically I wanted to ask is in um, Form 1, the singing lessons were only 15 minutes in the timetables, okay. whereas they were 30 minutes in the older forms. So mm -hmm. how would you bring that down for the Form 1 students? Would you just do a 30-minute lesson over two well, you can Session? automatically automatically take out that um, work with the modulator because they're not doing anything with solfa. So take out any sight singing, take out any modulator exercises, just do vocal vocalizing 
your voice training, la, 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 and singing songs. One thing, when I first started with Charlotte Mason, I shared in a group some lesson plans that I would do with my students in music class. Mm -hmm. And I was really hurt when a very knowledgeable Charlotte Mason person said, oh, that's contrived. And I thought, but it's a singing game that brings joy to five, six, seven-year-olds. You know, we can do that. And as I've read, I have done personal study in the PNEU volumes, in the programs, in, in Charlotte Mason's own writings. Mm -hmm. When they are six years old, you can play games with them. <laughs> right. It is not contrived. <laughs> <laughs> so, for example, like, um, uh, I run a Charlotte Mason co-op. And what we did, we just met on Friday. We just met two days ago. And a voice training exercise that I did is I had a ball and I said, what we're going to do is I'm going to sing a question and you're going to use your singing voice to sing me the answer. What's your favorite color? And I would throw it to someone. They would catch it. And if they said blue, I'd say, well, can you use your singing voice? Can you sing blue? And, you know, mm -hmm. so you can do that with a form one student. You don't have to say, oh, I want to hear you sing blue on so me. You can just sing and have them echo. And what you're doing is you're developing their singing voice because the way that our modern music is emulated on the radio and popular music, we are not teaching our children to have a beautiful tone. We're teaching them to belt it as loud and powerful as you can. And that's actually damaging physically to your vocal cords. So I think it's very important when you have a form one student, before you try to teach any theory, what a staff is, what the names of the notes are, anything like that, help them find their singing voice. And that's all I did in kindergarten when I was teaching in the public schools is we would play singing games and we would just sing, 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 sing. So that could be 15 that. minutes. <laughs> There's your 15 minutes singing games. Doggy, doggy, where's your bone? Bounce high, bounce low. That's another favorite one. Charlie over the ocean. I mean, I could, if you need, if you do show notes or anything and you want a list of popular singing games for form one, I'll be happy to give you a list. That would be lovely because oh. I am not familiar with any of the ones that you just mentioned. And Lucy Lockett. Do you know Lucy Lockett? That one I know. Yeah. Lucy Lockett lost her pocket. There's that so so me. So okay. talking about your sequence. So that's a great, great song. You could even just teach the song in the game to form one B and then in form one A, review the song and teach so so me and la. Mm, yeah, lovely. We continue our conversation with Rihanna Goss and Crystal Hosea on our next episode of Stone Chats, where we discuss curriculum options, free and paid resources, and more ideas for teaching our children about singing and solfa. Thank you for listening to the Wildwood Curriculum Podcast, Stone Chats. For more information about our free secular and inclusive curriculum based on the works of 19th century educator Charlotte Mason, please visit us at wildwoodcurriculum.org.